Sometimes the answer that we get isn't always the answer we hope for. We've experienced that uh, this week, perhaps, you know, with news that lockdown's likely to be extended even further. Now, homeschool's going to go on a bit longer. We love our kids, but it is a challenge uh, having children at home, especially when you're working. Perhaps not news that surprises us, but it's not necessarily the news that we, we hope for. And those times where our hopes are dashed, I guess it reveals that we've, we've hoped for something that has, has been an empty hope. And those times it can feel a bit like our day's been ruined. It's been almost about five years ago uh, where Tanya and I were brought into a meeting with a heart consultant. Uh, there we are sitting in this meeting. And the reason for this meeting is because we wanted to know what was causing, what's been this issue with these increased heart palpitations that Tanya's been having, what can be done about it. We're sitting there, and the consultant says, the diagnosis isn't good. There's a serious issue that needs to be dealt with. The heart has become calcified. Okay, so what can we do? There's nothing that can be done. You can't take any medication. There's nothing you can do. You can't change your lifestyle. You can't change what you're eating or what you're doing. You can't do anything. The only hope is outside intervention. Invasive heart surgery. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing. It was a bit more pastoral than that, the conversation. But in those moments, we weren't going in hoping for heart surgery. We had an awareness that that was likely what was going to be the case. There's a hope for something else. And when that hope, the answer you're hoping for is not the answer that you're given, sometimes you can feel like your day is ruined. And yet a ruined day in order that a life may be saved. And this morning we read of this man who comes to Jesus with this question and the answer he receives probably isn't the answer he's hoping for. It is a day that is ruined. Perhaps as you are listening to this, as you hear these words of Jesus, it's not the answer that you're hoping for. Your day is ruined as as you hear what Jesus says needs to be done. And yet a day ruined so that our life may be saved. So even if it ruins our day hearing what Jesus says, we need to hear these words. Are you prepared to hear the words of Jesus? Are we going to be focusing mainly on verses 16 to 26 this morning? We'll we'll dip in a bit to 27 and 30, but we're going to look at that a bit more next week uh, as these are connected to the parable that follows. Some anchor points then as we work through this morning. We're going to consider uh, this need for change. We need to change We cannot change, and yet we can be changed. So have your Bibles open or switched on. We can do that these days. Uh, To Matthew 19, starting at verse 16. We need to change. Verse 16, just then a man came up to Jesus. Just then, just when. It's been almost two months since we were last in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We finished our time there in verses 13 to 15. uh, The little children and Jesus. So these people have been bringing these children to Jesus, that Jesus would pray for them, that he would bless them. 
and the disciples are saying, no, don't, don't bother the master. No, he's got more important things to do. And Jesus says, no, verse 14, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven, or as it gets referred to in our passage this morning, also eternal life. It belongs to such as these, to such as those who we're talking about, well, those who are like little children. These little children who were brought to Jesus, they don't come with any status, they don't come with any resources. They're being brought to Jesus and they're being brought to him to be blessed. Coming in utter dependency. The kingdom of heaven, it belongs to those like these. And as Jesus is teaching this point then, this young man comes up to Jesus. And he asks him, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And that's the ultimate question, isn't it really? What, what must I do to get eternal life? Now, even people who don't believe in life after death, they ask that question. They may phrase it a slightly different way. Now, what do I need to do to stay eternally young, to live as long as possible? But there's something innate within us where we believe that death shouldn't be the final say. There's these echoes of Eden. What must I do to get eternal life? It's the ultimate question. And yet Jesus phrases that question slightly differently in his answer. Verse 17, if you want to enter life. So the question the man is coming with is, what must I do to get eternal life? What good thing? Jesus answers, well, if you want to enter life. There's a world of difference between getting something and entering into something. You get a car. You enter into marriage. Now, some marital problems result from the fact that we can perhaps view marriage like getting a car. When you get a car, you just acquire something that you didn't have. Nothing else changes in your life. Nothing needs to change in your life. You get this thing that you didn't have. It's a possession. When you enter into marriage, you don't get a spouse like you get a car. As you enter into marriage, things change. Things need to change. You change where you live. You change how you spend your finances. You change how you spend your time. Life does not, and it cannot continue as it did before. And this man asks Jesus, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus' answer subtly changes the question, well, how do you enter life? You enter life because a change is required. And our problem is deeper than just simply lacking something. It's not that we lack eternal life and we just need to to get that as though it's some sort of bolt on to our lives and limited life bolt on like some spiritual phone contract there is something deeper that we lack and so a radical change is required as we see from these verses that follows the man comes to jesus he says teacher what good thing must i do to get eternal life and jesus answers him Why do you ask me about what is good? 
There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. What good thing must I do? Well, if you want to know the measure of goodness, now being a, a devout Jew, Jesus is saying to this man, you, you should know God is the measure of goodness. You want to know what is good? You want to know who is good? You know God is good. What good thing must you do? Well, you must reflect God. God is good. What, what does that mean to reflect God, to live that out in everyday life? Jesus says, follow the commandment. The commandments of God, this expression of God's goodness, lived out in everyday life. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. The man asks, which ones? And so Jesus quotes a select number uh, of commands from the Ten Commandments, and then concludes with this command from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And the man's response, likely in all sincerity, I have kept all these things, what do I still lack? This awareness of lacking something. Verse 21, Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, Perfect has a sense of being complete. I, I cast your minds back or even turn back to Matthew 5. So Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Uh, and in Matthew 5, 43, Jesus quotes actually this same uh, passage from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. You say, you, you are to love your neighbor, but I tell you, you're also to love your enemies Because that's what God is like. God is good to those who are righteous. He is good to those who are unrighteous. He causes the sun to shine on the godly and the ungodly. He gives rain so you can have crops to the godly and to the ungodly. And then he concludes with these words in verse 48 of Matthew 5. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. To be perfect, to reflect God fully. And that's what we were created to do. We were created to be God's image bearers, to reflect God, not just in part, but perfectly. You know those halls of mirrors that you sometimes get at fun fairs, you get them in science museums, where you stand in them and they distort your image. Now, they normally reflect something that is true. It tends to be your feet. It's the only bit that doesn't get distorted. Everything else is distorted, and we find them slightly amusing. Probably less so in this age, now that we've got Twitter and TikTok and all other things that we can play with. But these things are slightly amusing because they distort our image. We can laugh at one another. But they reflect something that is true. They reflect in part, even if they don't reflect perfectly. And as humanity, we're all like a hall of mirrors. We may reflect something in part of who God is, but not perfectly, not completely. We fall short. And our lack then isn't so much a lack of of what we have as though there's something that we need to possess. It's a lack in who we are. That we don't reflect God as we ought. And God, who is alone good, the measure of goodness 
And if we don't reflect that, that means you know, living distortions of goodness, well, that's never a good thing. And that is what keeps us from entering into life. And so a change is needed. So verse 21, Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now Jesus isn't teaching that selling all your possessions is going to make you perfect, is going to make you complete. Okay, giving away everything, it may reflect something of God's generosity, but that's not going to to fix the image completely. That the focus is on the then come and follow me. It's only through our union with Christ that we can be made complete, that we can be perfect, that this image of God can be restored within us as we considered the other week in 1 Peter. That Christ, he himself, bore our sins these living distortions of God's image. Our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins, that we might live to righteousness. And we participate in Christ's death so that we may share in his resurrection, the new life. It is only through Christ that the image of God can be restored in us. And Jesus' words to this young man, this call to participate in his life, a really a specific application of his words on discipleship in Matthew 16. So Matthew 16, when Jesus first predicts his death, his need to die, in order that we might have new life, he then says, Matthew 16, 24, to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny yourself Take up your cross, follow me. And for this young man, the specific application of that was go sell your possessions, give to the poor. Take up your cross, follow me. Come, follow me. And perhaps as you listen to this passage, you come with that same question of the young man here. What must I do to get eternal life. And Jesus answers, if you want to enter life, then you need to to be united with him. You need to follow him. You need to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. And this isn't a once-for-all action. It's the way of discipleship. And so for all of us, a question for us to consider Now, at this particular point in time, what does it mean for us to take up our cross and follow Jesus? For this man, taking up his cross meant selling all his possessions. And what does it mean for you at this particular point in time? Because this is a way of life. It may mean giving up your wealth. It may mean giving up a job, a relationship, a hobby, a dream, a TV show, something on social media. What is keeping you from following Jesus? 
And yet it's not as simple as just giving up that thing. So we come to see in the verses that follow, we cannot change. And Jesus expands the response of this young man to describe the plight of all of us. In verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, the fact that this man goes away isn't an issue. Because Jesus has told him to go. Go away and sell your possessions, then come and follow me. But he goes away sad. And that is the complete opposite of what we read about in the story that Jesus tells about the man who finds that treasure in the field. So earlier, Matthew, Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, well, it's like this man who's out in the field and he discovers this treasure. And because of the joy of that treasure, he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to buy this field. So that he can buy this field and possess that treasure. And in that parable, that man saw the value of what it is that would be gained. And so with joy, he goes out. gets rid of everything in order that he may possess that one thing. And this young man here, he goes away sad as he considers the cost of what will be lost. See, one man in joy as he sees the value of what will be gained, the other man in sorrow because of the cost of what will be lost. And so we can conclude from this that if we would just consider what is gained, Because Jesus told the young man, you you sell everything and you will have treasure in heaven. And Jesus goes on to say to his disciples and to all of us, verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. See, what is lost is nothing compared to what is gained. If only we would consider what is gained, uh, then it would be easy to lose all these things. Would it? Because it's not as simple as that, is it? I mean, logically, it makes sense. On paper, it makes sense. We would all agree on paper. It makes sense to have short-term loss for eternal gain rather than to have some short-term gain for eternal loss. If this was a logic exercise, we would all come up with a right answer. But let's face it, we do not live our lives logically. We are not creatures that are designed to just walk around uh, living life through logic. There are many other things that are playing into it. I probably know, I think there's one person I've met in my whole life who's probably more on every decision is logical. For the majority of us, that's not the way that we live lives. We make ridiculous decisions, and we know that. Something that is, makes sense on paper, we don't make that choice in real life. We struggle to wait. The fact that Amazon Prime exists is evidence that we are not very good at waiting. Delay gratification, we struggle with it. If only we could see what is gained compared to what is lost but we don't. We don't see that. 
The problem is that by nature we are blind. We're blind to our own poverty. We're blind to the riches of God in Christ. And so we think we're rich. And we jealously guard those riches. And Jesus says to his disciples in verse 23, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how hard is hard? Hard is a relative term. Okay, we're talking like hard as in it is hard to get on the A1 southbound at Little Paxton. Or are we talking hard as in it's hard to find shop-bought bread in the Fairburn household? Like what level of hard are we talking about here? So Jesus goes on to define, okay, I'll tell you what I mean by hard. Verse 24, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, over the years, people have come up with various inventive ways to try and uh, explain this image. A camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, what does that mean? Because that's not an everyday occurrence. It doesn't make much sense. I mean, that's kind of the point. It's not an everyday occurrence. You've got a needle, something that was an everyday object with a very small aperture. Then Jesus describes the camel, the largest animal in that region. Jesus takes what is familiar and what is extreme and combines them together to make a point. So a modern-day idiom, a snowball in hell's chance. They don't try and think of a, a possibility where those two would go together. The whole point is they don't. A snowball in hell's chance means no chance. Jesus is saying it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard is it? It's that hard. There's a snowball in hell's chance of it happening. And this isn't just an issue for those who are financially rich. Because the disciples go on to ask in verse 25, they hear this, they're greatly astonished, and they say, who can be saved? It's likely that they had this mindset that riches were seen as a reward from God, a sign of God's blessing. And so if someone was rich, through moral means, not that they've got it through extortion, that people would consider, now this is a sign of someone who's in God's good books. And so the disciples are saying, look, if someone who is considered to be in God's good books cannot get in, what hope is there for the rest of us? Notice Jesus' response in verse 26. He doesn't correct their conclusion. Okay, their logical reasoning might be off, but their conclusion is absolutely sound. And Jesus looks straight at them. He fixes his gaze and he says, well, with man, this is impossible. Because what keeps us from entering in, from following Jesus, is that we are blind to our poverty. And we are blind to the riches of God in Christ. We think we're rich, and so we don't want to lose what we have. I mean, just imagine for a moment that you can't see. And perhaps it may help you to close your eyes as you imagine that. You can't see, but in your hand, you have a bag of coins. 
You can't see those coins, but you can touch them, you can feel them. You can feel the weight of that back. And then someone comes to you and they offer you a check. And they say, written on this check, it's made out to you, 10,000 trillion pounds. There's a number that you can't even conceive or imagine. And you feel that check. Can't see anything. It just feels like paper. There's no weight to it at all. Now, this bag of coins, you can feel that weight. You can hold them. You can touch them. Are you likely to give up that weighty bag of coins for that slip of paper? It's not enough just to consider what is gained is greater than what is lost. We don't make rational decisions because we don't see properly. We don't know what it is that we're refusing. And we think we know what it is that we're holding on to. And even as followers of Jesus, now we can fail to see fully. In verse 28, Jesus makes this promise to those who would become the twelve. And he says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. But just flick over a few pages. Matthew 26, verse 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Just hearing the glories of what was ahead, of what was promised, was not enough. It was not enough to keep the disciples following Jesus. Just considering what is gained is not enough. And even as we follow Jesus, as God has opened our eyes to that, we follow with faltering footsteps. There's a song by a band called Reliant K that has this line. If only I could find the words to say to let you know how much you've touched my life. Because here is where you're finding me in the exact same place as New Year's Eve. And from a lack of my persistency, we're less than half as close as I want to be. One of my aims in life is to be unable to sing those lyrics. And yet they ring true. From a lack of my persistency, we're less than half as close as I want to be. What can be done? Now try as I might, I cannot speak myself out of my blindness and my pursuit for worthless things. By just saying, just consider, Paul, the glories of what lies ahead. I know that Christ is to be the greatest treasure. And that the riches in him are greater than all the treasures of this world. And yet, I still find myself distracted. And like the young man in this chapter, we find ourselves spurning true riches to pursue that which is worthless. We pass that check in order to hold on to a bag of pennies. And so what hope 
is there? And Jesus looks at his disciples. He fixes his gaze at them and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so we need to be changed. We cannot change, but we can be changed. And the fact that any of us would recognize our spiritual poverty is evidence of a gracious act of God. And yet turning to Christ, coming to him as these little children, as dependents, is not a one-off act. That first step of discipleship marks all future steps. And as we seek to follow Christ, even with faltering footsteps, that the answer for us is not just focus on what is gained. Focus on what is gained, not what is unlost. That cannot be the answer because we cannot speak ourselves out of this blindness, out of our pursuit of worthless things. We cannot just speak to ourselves, but we can speak to God. Because what is impossible for man is possible for God. And as we come to the end of our our week of prayer, it's not the end of prayer. To the extent that God has opened our eyes by his grace that we see something of our poverty and of our need, let's use that to seek him. Pray for ourselves, pray for one another, pray for our communities and that our eyes be open to see our blindness. To see the riches that there are in Christ. So that our hearts would be, be moved towards him. That our hearts would be turned. Even our own hearts turned away from these worthless things. And turned towards the riches of the glories of Christ. We're not going to achieve this by our own strategies. What is impossible for man, though, is possible for God. We can't just speak to ourselves, but we can speak to him. So let's do that now. The psalmist prayed, Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. The Apostle Paul prayed, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Father, we thank you for your great grace towards us. Lord, that you would reach out to us Lord, those who have distorted that image of who you are, Lord, you would reach out to us in our sin, in our poverty. Lord, and you would do, you would do more than that, not only open a way for us to go, but enable us to see, Lord, our need that we may walk that way. Now, whether we recognize it or not, Lord, we confess that we are utterly dependent. And we pray that you would open our eyes a little more to that, that we would see uh, the riches that are in Christ. 
but that you would turn our eyes away from worthless things. Or that you would do that for your church, and that we may pursue Christ more and more, pursue the one who has pursued us. Father, we pray that for the communities around us. Or at this time where many hopes have been brought to nothing, as you have been showing the emptiness of our ways, and yet we so often fail to see it. Lord, open eyes, turn hearts towards you, that we may all see and say together, Lord, that it is in Christ, in Christ alone, that a hope is found, that there is true treasure, that there is true worth. Lord, among your people, Lord, in this nation, on this earth, turn our eyes away from worthless things. Or turn our hearts to Christ and open our eyes to the wonder of who you are. Amen.